Section 21 of A Woman's Journey Round the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Suprada Urval. A Woman's Journey Round the World by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter 21. Benares, Part 2. No one can form an accurate idea of India who has not gone beyond Calcutta. This city has become almost European. The palaces, the equipages are European. There are societies, balls, concerts, promenades, almost the same as in Paris or London. And if it was not for the tawny natives in the streets and the Hindu servants in the houses, a stranger might easily forget that he was in a foreign country. It is very different in Benares. The Europeans are isolated there, foreign customs and manners everywhere surround them and remind them that they are tolerated intruders. Benares contains 300,000 inhabitants, of which scarcely 150 are Europeans. The town is handsome, especially when seen from the river's side, where its defects are not observed. Magnificent rows of steps, built of colossal stones, lead up to the houses and palaces, and artistically built gateways. In the best part of the town, they form a continuous line two miles in length. These steps cost enormous sums of money, and a large town might have been built with the stones employed for them. The handsome part of the town contains a great number of antique palaces in the Moorish, Gothic, and Hindu styles, many of which are six stories high. The gates are most magnificent, and the fronts of the palaces and houses are covered with masterly arabesques and sculptured work. The different stories are richly ornamented with fine colonnades, verandas, balconies, and friezes. The windows alone did not please me. They were low, small, and seldom regularly arranged. All the houses and palaces have very broad sloping roofs and terraces. The innumerable temples afford a proof of the wealth and piety of the inhabitants of this town. Every Hindu, in good circumstances, has a temple in his house, that is, a small tower, which is frequently only twenty feet high. The Hindu temples consist properly of a tower thirty or sixty feet in height, without windows, and having only a small entrance. They appear, especially at a distance, very striking and handsome, as they are either artistically sculptured or richly covered with projecting ornaments such as pinnacles, small columns, pyramids, leaves, niches, etc. Unfortunately, many of these beautiful buildings are in ruins. The Ganges here and there undermines the foundations and palaces and temples sink into the soft earth or fall entirely down. Miserable little huts are in some places built upon these ruins and disfigure the fine appearance of the town, for even the ruins themselves are still beautiful. At sunrise, a spectacle is to be seen at the river, which has not its counterpart in the world. The pious Hindus come here to perform their devotions. They step into the river, turn towards the sun, throw three handsful of water upon their heads, and mutter their prayers. Taking into account the large population which Benares contains, besides pilgrims, it will not be exaggeration to say that the daily number of devotees amounts, 
on the average to fifty thousand persons numbers of brahmins sit in small kiosks or upon blocks of stone on the steps close to the water's edge to receive the charity of the wealthy and grant them absolution in return every hindu must bathe at least once in the day and particularly in the morning if he is pious and has time he repeats the ceremony again in the evening the women bathe at home at the time of the festival called mala when the concourse of pilgrims is innumerable the steps are crowded with masses of human beings and the river appears as if covered with black spots from the number of the bathers heads the interior of the city is far less handsome than that portion which extends along the ganges it contains many palaces but these have not the same beautiful gateways colonnades and verandas as those already described many of these buildings are covered with fine cement and others are painted with miserable frescoes the streets are for the most part both dirty and ugly and many of them are so narrow that there is scarcely room for a palanquin to pass at the corner of almost every house stands the figure of the god shiva among the temples in the town the handsomest is the bisvishas it has two towers connected by colonnades with their summits covered with golden plates the temple is surrounded by a wall but we were allowed to enter the forecourt and to go as far as the entrance we saw inside several images of vishnu and shiva wreathed with flowers and strewn over with grains of rice wheat etc small bulls of metal or stone stood in the porch and living white bulls of which i counted eight wandered about at liberty the latter are considered sacred and are allowed to roam where they please and are not prevented from satisfying their hunger with even the sacrificial flowers and corn these sacred animals do not remain in the temples only they wander about the streets and the people turn reverently out of their way and frequently give them fodder they do not however allow them to eat the corn exposed for sale as was formerly the case if one of the sacred animals happened to die it is either thrown into the river or burnt they receive in this respect the same honor as the hindus themselves in the temple there were men and women who had brought flowers with which they decorated the images some of them also laid a piece of money under the flowers they then sprinkled them over with ganges water and strewed rice and other corn about near the temple are the most holy places in the town namely the so called holy well and the mankarnika a large basin of water the following anecdote is told of the former when the english had conquered benares they planted a cannon before the entrance of the temple to destroy the image of the god mahadeo the brahmins greatly indignant at this instigated the people to revolt and they hastened in numerous crowds to the temple the english to prevent a disturbance said to the people if your god is stronger than the christian god the balls will not hurt him but if not he will be broken to pieces of course the latter was the result the brahmins however did not give up their cause but declared that they had seen the spirit of their god leave the idol before the cannon was fired and plunge into the spring near at hand from this time the spring was considered sacred the mankarnika is a deep basin paved with stone about 60 feet long and of equal breadth 
broad steps lead from the four sides into the water a similar tradition but connected with the god shiva is attached to this place both deities are said to have continued to reside in these waters down to the present day every pilgrim who visits benares must on his arrival bathe in this holy pool and at the same time make a small offering several brahmins are always present to receive these gifts they are in no way distinguished by their dress from the bulk of the better classes but the color of their skin is clearer and many of them have very noble features fifty paces from this pool on the banks of the ganges stands a remarkably handsome hindu temple with three towers unfortunately the ground sunk in a few years since and the towers were thrown out of their proper position one inclines to the right and the other to the left the third is almost sunk into the ganges among the thousand of other temples there is here and there one which is worth the trouble of a cursory inspection but i would not advise any one to go much out of their way on their account the place for burning the dead is very near the holy pool when we went there they were just roasting a corpse the mode of burning cannot be described by any other name the fire was so small and the corpse projected over on all sides among the other buildings the mosque aurangzeb is most worthy of the notice of travelers it is famous on account of its two minarets which are 150 feet high and are said to be the slenderest in the world they look like two needles and certainly are more deserving of the name than that of cleopatra at alexandria narrow winding staircases in the interior lead to the top upon which a small platform with a balustrade a foot high is erected it is fortunate for those who are not subject to dizziness they can venture out and take a bird's eye view of the endless sea of houses and the innumerable hindu temples the ganges also with its step quays miles long lies exposed below i was told that on very clear fine days a distant chain of mountains was perceivable the day was fine and clear but i could not see the mountains the observatory is a very remarkable and artistic building it was built by chasing under the intelligent emperor akbar more than two centuries since there are no ordinary telescopes to be found there all the instruments are constructed of massive blocks of stone upon a raised terrace to which stone steps lead stand circular tables semicircular and quadratic curves etc which are covered with signs writing and lines with these instruments the brahmins made and still make their observations and calculations we met with several brahmins busily engaged with calculations and written treatises banaras is on the whole the chief seat of indian learning among the brahmins 6000 in number i was told there were many who give instruction in astronomy sanskrit and other scientific subjects the sacred apes are another of the curiosities of banaras their principal location is upon some of the immense mango trees in the suburbs of durgakand the animals seemed as if they knew we had come to see them for they approached quite close to us but when the servant whom i had sent for some food for them returned and called them to him it was amusing to see the merry creatures come running from the trees the roof of the houses and the streets we were in a moment closely surrounded by several hundreds who fought together in the most comical manner for the fruits and grain 
the largest or oldest acted as commander wherever there was quarrelling he rushed in and commenced thrashing the combatants threatening them with his teeth and making a muttering sound upon which they immediately separated it was the largest and most comical party of monkeys i ever saw they were generally more than two feet high and their skins were a dirty yellow color my kind host took me one day to sarnath five miles from benares where there are some interesting ruins of three remarkably massive towers they are not particularly high and stand upon three artificially raised mounds a mile distant from each other both the mounds and towers are constructed of large bricks the largest of these towers is still covered in many places with stone slabs on which traces of arabesques are here and there visible numbers of slabs lie scattered about the ground there are no signs of any such covering on the remaining towers in each there is a small door and a single apartment excavations were commenced beneath these towers by the english government in the hope of making some discoveries which would throw light upon the origin of these buildings but nothing was found beyond an empty underground vault there is a lake close by of artificial construction which is supplied with water from the ganges by a canal there is a very singular tradition connected with these towers and the lake in very ancient times three brothers ruled here who were giants and had these buildings erected and the lake excavated and all in one day it must however be known that a day at that time was equal to two years of modern reckoning the giants were so tall that they could go from one tower to the other with a step and the reason these were built so close was their fondness for each other and their desire to be always together an indigo plantation in the neighborhood the first i ever saw was not less interesting to me than these towers and their singular tradition the indigo plant is herbaceous and from one to three feet high with delicate bluish-green leaves the harvest is generally in august the plants are cut tolerably low on the principal stem tied together in bundles and thrown into large wooden vats planks are laid on the tops of the bundles weighted with stones and water poured on them generally after sixteen hours though sometimes after several days according to the character of the water fermentation commences this is the principal difficulty and everything depends upon its continuance for the proper time when the water has acquired a dark green color it is transferred to other wooden vessels lime added and the whole stirred with wooden spades until a blue deposit takes place after being allowed to settle the water is poured off and the substance remaining behind is put into long linen bags through which the moisture filters as soon as the indigo is dry it is broken in pieces and packed shortly before my departure i had the pleasure of being presented to the raja through the aid of my fellow traveller mr law he resides in the citadel ramnagar which lies on the left bank of the ganges above the town a handsomely ornamented boat awaited us at the bank of the river and on the other side a palanquin we soon found ourselves at the entrance of the palace the gateway of which is lofty and majestic i expected to have been gratified in the interior by the sight of spacious courts and a handsome style of architecture but found only irregular courts and small unsymmetrical apartments destitute of all taste and luxury in one of the courts was a plain columned hall on the level of the ground which served as a reception room 
This hall was overcrowded with glass lusters, lamps, and European furniture. On the walls were some miserable pictures, framed and glazed. Outside was a swarm of servants who gazed at us with great attention. Presently the prince made his appearance, accompanied by his brother and some courtiers and attendants, who could scarcely be distinguished the one from the other. The two princes were very richly dressed. They wore wide trousers, long under and short overgarments, all made of satin embroidered with gold. The elder one, aged thirty-five, wore short silk cuffs embroidered with gold, the edge set with diamonds. He had several large brilliant rings on his finger, and his silk shoes were covered with beautiful gold embroidery. His brother, a youth of nineteen whom he had adopted, wore a white turban with a costly clasp of diamonds and pearls. Footnote 170 If a Hindu has no son, he adopts one of his relations in order that he may fulfill the duties of his son at the funeral of his adoptive father. End of footnote He had large pearls hanging from his ears and rich massive bracelets on his wrists. The elder prince was a handsome man with exceedingly amiable and intellectual features. The younger one pleased me far less. We had scarcely seated ourselves when a large silver basin with elaborately worked narjalis were brought and we were invited to smoke. We declined this honor and the prince smoked alone. He took only a few whiffs of the same narjali, which was then replaced by another handsomer one. The behavior of the princess was very decorous and lively. I regretted that we could communicate only through an interpreter. He inquired whether I had ever seen a Natch festival dance. On my answering that I had not, he immediately ordered one to be performed. In half an hour, two female dancers and three musicians appeared. The dancers were dressed in gay gold-embroidered muslin, white silk trousers embroidered with gold, which reached to the ground and quite covered their bare feet. One of the musicians played upon two small drums, the other two on four-stringed instruments similar to our violins. They stood close behind the dancers and played without melody or harmony, the dancers making at the same time very animated motions with their arms, hands and fingers, more than with their feet, on which they wore silver bells, which they rung at intervals. They made handsome and graceful drapings and figures with their overgarments. This performance lasted about a quarter of an hour, after which they accompanied the dance with singing. The two sylphides shrieked so miserably that I was in fear for my ears and nerves. During the performance, sweetmeats, fruits, and sherbet, a cooling sweet acidulated beverage, were handed round. After the dance was ended, the prince asked if I would like to see his garden, which is a mile distant from the palace. I was indiscreet enough to accept his offer. In company with the young prince, we proceeded to the front square of the palace, where elegantly ornamented elephants stood ready. The elder prince's favorite elephant, an animal of uncommon size and beauty, was destined for myself and Mr. Law. A scarlet canopy with tassels, fringes, and gold-embroidered lace nearly covered the whole animal. A convenient seat was placed upon his broad back, which might be compared to a phaeton without wheels. The elephant was made to kneel down, a ladder was placed against his side, and Mr. Law and myself took our places. Behind us sat a servant who held an enormously large umbrella over our heads. 
the driver sat upon the neck of the animal and pricked it now and then between the ears with a sharp pointed iron rod the young prince with his attendant and servants took their places upon the other elephants several officers on horseback rode at our side two soldiers with drawn sabers ran in front of the party to clear the way and upwards of a dozen soldiers also with drawn sabers surrounded us while a few mounted soldiers brought up the rear although the motion of the elephant is quite as jolting and unpleasant as that of the camel this truly indian ride afforded me great pleasure when we had arrived at the garden the young prince seemed by his proud look to ask whether we were not charmed with its magnificence our delight was unfortunately assumed for the garden was far too plain to deserve much praise in the background of the garden stands a somewhat ruinous royal summer palace as we were about leaving the garden the gardener brought us some beautiful nosegays and delicious fruits a custom universal in india outside the garden was a very large water basin covered with handsome blocks of stone broad steps led up to the water and at the corner stood beautiful kiosks ornamented with tolerably well-executed reliefs the raja of benares received from the english government an annual pension of one lakh that is hundred thousand rupees ten thousand pounds he is said to receive as much more from his property and nevertheless to be very much in debt the causes of this are his great extravagance in clothes and jewellery his numerous wives servants horses camels and elephants etc i was told that the prince has forty wives about a thousand servants and soldiers a hundred horses fifty camels and twenty elephants on the following morning the raja sent to inquire how the excursion had pleased us and presented me with confectionery sweetmeats and the rarest fruits among others grapes and pomegranates which at this time of the year are scarce they came from kabul which is about 700 miles distant from this place finally i must mention that for many years no one has died in the palace which the raja occupies the reason of this is said to be the following one of the rulers of this palace once asked a brahmin what would become of the soul of any one who died in the palace the brahmin answered that it would go to heaven the raja repeated the same question 99 times and always received the same answer but on asking the 100th time the brahmin lost patience and answered that it would go into a donkey since that time every one from the prince to the meanest servant leaves the palace as soon as they feel themselves unwell none of them are desirous of continuing after death the part which they have perhaps so frequently commenced in this life while in benares i had two opportunities of seeing the so-called martyrs of the fakirs a priestly sect of the hindus these martyrs impose upon themselves the most various tortures for example they stick an iron hook through their flesh and have themselves drawn up to a height of 20 or 5 and 20 feet or they stand several hours in the day upon one foot and at the same time stretch their arms in the air or hold heavy weights in various positions turn round in a circle for hours together tear the flesh off their bodies etc they frequently torment themselves so much as to be in danger of their lives these martyrs are still tolerably venerated by the people however there are at the present time but a few more remaining one of the two whom i saw held a heavy axe over his head 
and had taken the bent attitude of a workman hewing wood. I watched him for more than a quarter of an hour. He remained in the same position as firmly and quietly as if he had been turned to stone. He had, perhaps, exercised this useless occupation for years. The other held the point of his foot to his nose. Another sect of the fakirs condemned themselves to eat only a little food, and that of the most disgusting kind, the flesh of oxen that have died, half-rotten vegetables, and refuse of every kind, even mud and earth. They say that it is quite immaterial what the stomach is filled with. The fakirs all go about almost naked, smear their bodies with cow dung, not even accepting the face, and then strew ashes over themselves. They paint their breasts and foreheads with the symbolical figures of Vishnu and Shiva, and dye their ragged hair dark reddish-brown. It is not easy to imagine anything more disgusting and repulsive than these priests. They wander about all the streets, preaching and doing whatever they fancy. They are, however, far less respected than the martyrs. One of the gentlemen whose acquaintance I made in Benares was so obliging as to communicate to me some information as to the relation of the peasants to the government. The peasant has no landed property. All the land belongs either to the English government, the East India Company, or the native princes. It is let out altogether. The principal tenants divide it into small lots and sublet these to the peasants. The fate of the latter depends entirely upon the disposition of the principal tenant. He determines the amount of rent and frequently demands the money at a time when the crops are not harvested and the peasant cannot pay. The poor people are then obliged to sell the unripe crops for half their worth, and their landlord generally contrives to buy it himself in the name of another person. The unfortunate peasant frequently has scarcely a sufficiency left to keep life in himself and his family. Laws and judges there certainly are in the country, and, as everywhere else, the laws are good and the magistrates just. But it is another question whether the poor ever receive justice. The districts are so extensive that the peasant cannot undertake a journey of seventy or eighty miles, and even when he lives near, he cannot always reach the presence of the magistrate. The business of the latter is so great that he cannot himself attend to the details, and generally he is the only European in office, the remaining officials consisting of Hindus and Mahomedans, whose character, a lamentable fact, is always worse the more they come in contact with Europeans. If, therefore, the peasant comes to court without bringing a present, he is generally turned away, his petition or complaint is not accepted or listened to, and how is he to bring a present after being deprived of everything by the landlord? The peasant knows this and therefore seldom makes a complaint. An Englishman, unfortunately I have forgotten his name, who travelled in India for scientific purposes, proves that the peasants have now to suffer more than formerly under their native princes. In India, under the so-called free English government, I found a sad proof that the position of the slaves in Brazil is better than that of the free peasants here. The slave there has not to provide for any of his wants, and he is never burdened with too much work, as the interest of his master would then suffer, for a slave costs seven or eight hundred gulders, seventy pounds or eighty pounds, and it is to the interest of his owner that he should be well treated that he may be longer of service. It cannot be denied that there are cases in which the slaves are tyrannically treated, but this is extremely rare.
Several German and English missionaries reside in the neighborhood of Benares and go constantly to the town to preach. At one of these missionary establishments is a Christian village which contains more than 20 Hindu families. Nevertheless, Christianity makes scarcely any advance. Footnote 173 The dislike which the Hindus evince towards the Europeans is chiefly in consequence of the latter showing no honor to the cow, of their eating ox flesh and drinking brandy, and that they spit in their houses and even in the temples and wash their mouths with their fingers, etc. They call the Europeans Parangi. This disrespect is said to make the Hindus dislike the Christian religion. End of footnote. I inquired of each of the missionaries how many Hindus or Mahomedans they had baptized in the course of their labors. Generally, they said none, very seldom one. The above-mentioned families result from the year 1831, when nearly the whole of India was ravaged by cholera, nervous fever, or famine. The people died, and many children remained orphans, wandering about without a home. The missionaries took these and brought them up in the Christian religion. They were instructed in all kinds of trades, were housed, married, and their whole maintenance provided for. The descendants of these families are continually educated by the missionaries and strictly watched. As to new converts, however, there are unfortunately none. I was present at several examinations. The boys and girls seem to have been taught well to read, write, reckon, and were well acquainted with religion and geography. The girls were clever embroiderers. They did needlework very well and sewed all kinds of things. The boys and men made tables, carpets, bound books, printed, etc. The director and professor of this excellent establishment is the missionary, Mr. Luitpold. His wife has the superintendence of the girls. The whole is sensibly and intelligently arranged and conducted. Mr. and Mrs. Luitpold attend to their proteges with true Christian love. But what are a few drops in an immeasurable sea? End of section 21. Recording by Suprada Urval from Saratoga, California.